0: Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, we read, Then he, that is Jesus, went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples for there were many and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, because they were cowards and they didn't have enough courage to face Jesus themselves, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors, sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Remember that the second chapter of Mark begins with a story about forgiveness. And now it's going to continue with yet another story about the the power of the servant to fulfill us. This is the story of the conversion of Levi and the celebration that follows. Remember, he is painted in the gospel of Mark as the servant, the servant on a mission, and his mission is to seek and to save that which is lost. But what if you're really lost? I mean, desperately lost. What if you're the kind of person who was voted most likely to go to hell? What if you are one of those people who either just barely avoided prison or you in fact went to prison? What if you're one of those kind of people likely to be rejected, likely to be a social outcast? What if your wickedness is the kind of wickedness that takes a person's breath away when you walk into a room? At the turn of the century when it wasn't necessarily... Common to get pregnant out of wedlock. A woman found herself pregnant. And not just pregnant, but she was in England at the turn of the century and she happened to be pregnant by a man of another race. So that when she gave birth to the child, her child was biracial. And when she went to the church, the priest approached her and said, if you come to the Bible study, all of the women won't come. And her eyes began to fill with tears and she said, isn't there a place for a sinner to go? And fortunately, there was a group of people, they were called the Salvation Army, and they began to do things in a very different way. They began to invite people to come and hear the gospel and understand that God wasn't just in the business of making good people religious, but he was, making, he was willing to save people who had a life and a lifestyle that was completely different. The controversy surrounding Jesus will continue to grow. Jesus has claimed authority and the ability to forgive sins in verse 5. And now Jesus will choose to consort with bad company, tax collectors, and sinners. Later, The fact that the disciples will not fast will raise serious questions about their true spirituality in verses 18 through 22. And to make matters worse, the question of Sabbath violations will deeply offend the religious leaders in verses 23 through 28. But Jesus will call the outcast and the sinner in verse 14. Jesus will become what we call a known associate of outcasts and sinners in verse 15. And Jesus will answer a major question posed by the religious leaders. How do we explain the servant's willingness to keep company with sinners? Why in the world would Jesus befriend a sinner? Why would he rescue a drug dealer, a prostitute, a slave trader? You know, when I was at Calvary and I'm looking around the room of of the guys that I grew up with, I said, oh, look, there's Jerry Brown. He was a drug dealer. Oh, look, there's Bob Caldwell. He was a drug dealer. Oh, look at Greg Laurie. By his own admission, his mother was like the woman at the well going through a series of failed relationships. Look around you. Look at the people who were either just barely out of prison or who were involved in every kind of reckless lifestyle that you can imagine. And so, how is it possible for Jesus to care about someone who is so far from the kingdom and so completely and unlikely to do His will? In verse 13 it says, Then He went out again by the sea and the multitude came to Him and He taught them. By the way, when it says he, Jesus came out again by the sea, it's the sea of Galilee. And when you look in verse 13 at the word multitude, think crowds. And I'm not just talking about dozens of people or even scores of people. We're talking hundreds and thousands of people were coming out to him. And look what it says. Once again, we see the priority of preaching and the word he taught them. I think it's safe to say that he taught them what he's already been teaching them. That there's a God in heaven. That God is going to send the Messiah. That the reality is that there is a satisfying solution to the problem of your sin. That God cares about you. He's willing to redeem you. He's willing to give you peace. He's willing to reconcile you to the Father. By the way, Jesus is the faithful servant of God who's prepared to teach. And so we are to be faithful and obedient and exercise opportunities to share and and preach and teach about the Lord Jesus. And sometimes it's as simple as being able to talk about what God has done in your life, how he has filled you and redeemed you and healed you and forgiven you and reconciled you. And look what it says in verse 14, as he passed by, that is, he's on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And by the way, there are two major thoroughfares. If you have a Bible and you have maps in that Bible and you go to the Sea of Galilee and you look on the map where Capernaum is, the Romans had built a road that went north and south and east and west, and Capernaum became a crossroads of trade and interaction. As he passed by, he sees Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, read Booth. Jesus appears to have finished teaching. We're introduced to Levi, the son of Alphaeus. And I wonder if his father was ashamed of his son. Clearly, when he named him, he must have had a different kind of expectation because Levi or Levi was the name that certainly described the priests and the priesthood. But Levi had elected to go in a different direction. He elected to get a different job, a job as a tax collector. He's also known as Matthew, by the way. And he is called Matthew in the Gospel of Matthew and is, of course, the author of that Gospel. Jesus changed his name to Matthew. And so he decided that he would go by that name, the name that Jesus had given him. But both Mark and Luke use his given name, Levi, in Luke chapter 5, verse 27. But in Matthew's Gospel, he chooses to use the name that Jesus gave him because Matthias, is a hebrew name which means the gift of jehovah you probably know what my name means china you know. the cattle are dead no that's not really it but i mean but in the ancient days their names they had specific meanings he goes by the name that jesus gave him And when we read in his gospel, he himself wants to stress what God has done in his life, the mercy that God has shown him. Matthew wanted the world to know that it was God's gracious love and God's gracious mercy that was lavished upon him, that saved him, the outcast and the sinner. As a matter of fact, the text tells us that Levi was sitting at the booth that was set up near the shore. And in the ancient culture of Rome and Capernaum, there were tax franchises. Just like if you wanted to open up a McDonald's or a Chick-fil-A, you could purchase the franchise. But in the Roman government, you usually could purchase a franchise at a particular place, but it was usually restricted to only the most wealthy of people because you could get rich as a tax collector. As a matter of fact, in Capernaum, caravans came bringing gold and silver and spice and precious cargo. Capernaum was a place that was booming. As a matter of fact, Josephus tells us that Capernaum was one of nine cities that had a population in excess of 15,000 people. And at the north shore of Galilee, there was fishing. And so there was taxes for the fish and there was boat building and there was there was mending of nets and there were the, the, uh, making sales and then the mending of those sails, And so the production of boats, the production of sails, the repairs generated jobs and the Roman government sold or commissioned the tax stations that would generate the profits. And the government's goal in those days was the government's goal in this day. The government's goal, take as much of your money as they can. Your goal, to keep as much money as you can. But it's difficult when the government has the right to incarcerate you, or jail you, or imprison you, or even kill you when you don't pay your taxes. The people's goal was to give only what Rome required. The tax franchise were given a quota. And any money that was collected beyond the quota was often kept by the tax collector. And so you can see the tax collectors were willing to do or say anything to get more money. They were sort of the used car salesmen of their generation. Have you ever gone to a car lot and a person says to you, what will it take for you to buy this car from me today? And I usually will say, if you can solve world hunger and completely eliminate the threat of nuclear annihilation, I will buy this car from you today. It's a fantastic game. How can I keep my money? And so Matthew, the fact that he was willing to be a tax collector tells us something about him. In order to make money, in order to make lots of money. He was willing to make huge concessions. He was willing to bear the isolation, ridicule, anger, hatred from his family, from his community. In order to make money, in order to make lots of money, he was willing to compromise. He was willing to do whatever was necessary to make that money, including enter into a league with the occupier of your country to, to embrace a certain group of people and then be repelled by another group of people. So what was Matthew willing to do to bear that anger, to bear that hatred, to bear that shame? And in verse 14, Jesus sees him. And what does Jesus see? He's walking and there is a cacophony of sounds, the jingling of money. There is Matthew. He's sitting at the table. There's the ledgers. There's the books. There's the money. How do you go from just a look to an invitation? Now remember, Jesus has been teaching in the multitude. Jesus has already in Capernaum cast out demons. Jesus has already healed a paralytic. Jesus has already cleansed a leper. And was Levi in a place where the bitter hatred and the stinging accusations and the social isolation was starting to get to him? Did Jesus know that there was something inside of this man's heart sitting at that table that compelled him to just stop for a moment? and stare. Just like in your life. That you pause for just a moment and you hear about Jesus and you begin to understand that Jesus is the maker of heaven and earth, that He is the creator of all things, that He has the ability to look inside of your heart and see inside of your circumstances. Does Jesus sense that inner ache and torment where Matthew, even though he is f- fabulously wealthy, even though he's made incredible personal concessions. There's something inside of him that's aching for freedom and desperately wanting forgiveness and peace and hope, and no amount of money seems to be able to to buy it. He was willing to bear the ridicule and the hatred and the accusations from his family in order to generate all of this wealth. But does Jesus see someone who wants some way out of the wicked world and the sinful circumstances and place him on a road of forgiveness and reconciliation with God? And Jesus sees him and invites him. To leave a world of self-indulgence and sin and guilt and follow him. And for conversion of Levi, note it begins with a call. And this is something that should shock you and surprise you. Without a divine call, no one can be saved. I can sit here or stand here and preach my heart out and tell you whatever I think that you need to hear, but nothing is going to replace the soft call that comes inside of your heart as the living Savior Himself begins to knock on the door of your heart. Not demanding entrance, but requesting entrance. Without a divine call, no one can be saved. Unless Jesus Himself issues, the invitation inside of your soul, you're going to never know what it means to be saved. Can you imagine Matthew is there? What was he thinking? What was he thinking? And when I was reading the passage, I couldn't help but think of the prophet Hosea who had married a harlot and she had given birth through multiple people to, to to, to return to her husband and Hosea says in Hosea chapter six, verse one, come and let us return to the Lord for he is torn, but he will heal us. He is stricken, but he will bind us up. Is it possible to return to the Lord, even though you have been ripped apart inside of you? As a matter of fact, later, Matthew himself would record these words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. It was Matthew who would remember what the Savior would say. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And the end of verse 14 is powerful and explosive. Look what it says. Levi gets up and follows Jesus. Now think of the picture. Paint the picture yourself. What about the books? What about the ledger? What about the money? How do you walk away from these obligations? How do you walk away from something that you can never walk back to you. By the way, someone has suggested that when Matthew walked away from that table and he walked away from everything on that table, the only thing that he took with him was the pen that was in his hand and the parchment that was in his pouch. And when he walked away with that pen and with that parchment, God is going to use him in, in, an, in, a, in the most remarkable way. Clearly, Matthew has some idea concerning the claims of Jesus and the message of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus. Remember, this is the ministry headquarters in Capernaum, Matthew's tax district. Clearly, Matthew could have seen the comings and goings of Jesus. Matthew knew that Matthew was despised. He knew that he worked for the enemy. He knew that he had surrendered any claim to moral integrity. He knew that the moment that Jesus stopped and said, follow me, he saw the religious leaders' jaw drop and their eyes get really big. But what he didn't necessarily expect was Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Their eyes got big too. And their jaw dropped also. Hey, by the way, if you're going to start a ministry team, if you're going to plant a church, does it make sense? Hey, let's have for our ministry team the most hated, the most despised person in the city. Hey, let's ask him to join the team. Can you imagine? Maybe Peter, James and John and Andrew are going, Jesus, time. time out. Holy huddle. Let's all gather together. Let's have a holy huddle and really think about what you're doing here, Jesus. Matthew is walking away from a lucrative career in government. If he's willing to suffer and sacrifice, he can make tons of money. Peter, James, John and Andrew, they can always go back to fishing. But the moment that Matthew leaves this place, he can never go back. The Romans aren't going to hold his job for him. You see, we sometimes forget... That Matthew, perhaps more than any other single apostle, when he gets up from that table and he walks away from that table, he isn't on some sort of exploration. It isn't, it isn't, hey, if this Messiah thing doesn't turn out, if this Christianity thing doesn't work, I can always go back to my old job. Matthew, Matthew is leaving a lifestyle that he can never go back to. And in Matthew 16, verse 25, he'll remember the words of Jesus. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. His conversion was a miracle. There's no other way to put it. The fact that he's called is a miracle. The fact that he's converted is a miracle. But have you ever stopped to think that your call and your conversion is no less of a miracle? That God could take someone exactly like you. Who could take all of the things that you've ever said and ever done and cleanse your heart and make you new. That everything visible and invisible, everything known and unknown. That the Lord Jesus, knowing fully and completely all of your faults, all of your frailties, all of your inconsistencies can save you. By the way, in Mark's gospel and the other gospels, Matthew is very rarely mentioned by name. He is mentioned on the list when the apostles are named. By the way, when Peter will go and deliver his sermon after Jesus rises from the dead in Acts chapter 2, verse 14, it says... When Peter lifts up his voice and preaches, it says, Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and preached. Matthew was one of those eleven. He was there. By the way, we're not told a single sermon that he ever preached. We're not told exactly about his administrative skills. Matthew was a man with a pen and a keeper of records, and he feels way more comfortable with a pen and a piece of paper than he does with a pulpit. But Matthew will preach. According to church history, Matthew will make his way to the island of Cyprus where he will begin to preach the gospel. He will impart the story of Jesus and then Matthew will leave the island of Cyprus and he will sail for Egypt and he will enter into the mouth of the delta and he will begin the journey down the Nile. And as he goes down the Nile, he will go past upper Egypt and lower Egypt until he finds himself of all places in Ethiopia where the Ethiopian treasurer had gone. He goes and he presents the gospel. He shares the story of Christ. He goes to the outer limits, to the furthest borders of civilization. Because that's where the outcast goes. That's where the person who... Jesus saves, who understands what it means to live a wild and a wicked life. He goes to that place where no one else wants to go. And by the way, according to church tradition, a man takes a pike. It's a very long spear with what looks like a tomahawk, a hatchet at the end of of the pike. It was a special weapon that was used by the Ethiopians and they hacked Matthew to pieces. That's going to be the end of his life. The astonished disciples and the baffled religious leaders must have been thinking in their mind, who in their right mind would want to have anything to do with this guy? But Jesus sees what only Jesus sees. He has access both to the past and the present and the future. You see, Jesus knows how it's going to begin with you, but He also knows how it's going to end with you. Jesus would use this man to give the world a revelation of the King in Matthew chapters 1 through 10, rebellion against the King in chapters 11 through 13, the retirement of the King in chapters 14 through 20, the rejection of the King in chapters 21 through 27, the resurrection of the King in chapter 28. But can you imagine a world where there was no Sermon on the Mount, where there were no parables of the kingdom? That's the kind of world you would live in if Jesus didn't pause and look at Matthew and say, follow me. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing that day. And Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. When he issued you the invitation, he knew exactly what he was doing. When he peered into your past and into your soul and into your sin and invited you to love him and believe him and receive him and be cleansed by him. Can you imagine the tax collector's eyes filling with tears? Can you imagine all of a sudden his heart becomes ready to explode with joy? Me? Jesus, are are you sure you meant me? The religious leaders were willing to close the door to the synagogue. And so now Jesus is willing to go to the highways and the byways. The Bible says that there are not many wise, but there are many who are foolish. It says in verse 15, now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many and they followed him. Matthew's celebration. He throws a party. He's walking away from the government job. He celebrates his newfound freedom in Christ. And by the way, this isn't just a party. This isn't just a party to celebrate. This isn't just a bunch of sinners having a kegger or smoking around. Levi invites his friends to meet with Jesus. Jesus accepts the hospitality and gets transformed into a kind of host. Jesus becomes the magnet and the life of the party. And there you are. It, apparently, it's a big enough house to house all of these people. And the party begins. Can you hear the music playing from the first century? Can you hear the sounds of the music? Celebrate good times. Come on. It's a celebration. If Jesus could want Matthew, then there's this possibility that he might want Matthew's friends. It made perfect sense to Matthew that if Jesus could call someone like him and save someone like him, why not invite everyone to hear the experience that Matthew heard and experienced? G. Campbell Morgan describes the people at the party as, quote, a class held in supreme contempt by the religious men of the time, unquote. J.C. Ryle writes, The very animals whose smell is most offensive to us have no idea that they're offensive. And they're not offensive to one another. And man, fallen man, has just no idea what a vile thing sin is in the sight of God, unquote. And look carefully at the term sinners, because it might be misleading. Here, the term doesn't mean immoral lifestyle. It doesn't mean prostitute. It doesn't mean serial killer. It doesn't mean the lowest of the low. It doesn't mean scum of the earth. Here, it means a person who does not keep all the minute details of the religious observance. Here, it means the person who does not embrace the traditions of Judaism, who did not take the same weight and expectation from the Jewish culture. The religious leaders therefore called anyone who failed to keep the law according to their traditions, sinners. Here, sinner isn't just, again, a person living some sort of immoral lifestyle. This is a person li- not living up to their expectations. Do you go to the temple? Do you take- make the sacrifices? Do you do what needs to be done? To some religious people, all non-religious people appear to be sinners. The surprise isn't that they're sinners, but rather that Jesus would be there. And by the way, there's no hint that Jesus holds them in disgust or contempt. Jesus doesn't expose their greed or their selfishness or their wickedness. There's no hint of superiority. There's no hint of contempt. There's no hint of patronage. The religious leaders might have excused the presence of Jesus at the party. The fact that he's at the party might be understood if he would do the good and decent thing and expose the whole lot for the worthless collective bucket of scum that they are. But he doesn't do that. Hey, if you're going to go to the party, you're going you're to set them straight, right? You're going to talk about how wicked they are and how righteous you are. For the religious leaders... They're wondering how it's even possible to expose yourself to such people and not be defiled by them. And so in verse 16, it says, and when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, they don't have enough courage to say it to his face. Excuse me. Excuse me. Your rabbi. He's a righteous guy. He said good Bible studies. He's a good and decent man. He's an observant Jew, just like we're observant Jews. How is it possible that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? You know what it's like? It would think of it, You're at a Republican convention. Think of the way Republicans say the word Democrat and liberal. Then you get an idea of where they're going with this. You can't say it without a frown. And by the way, the text provides the opportunity to contrast two attitudes towards the sinner and the outcast. We might think of the attitude of religious and respectable people towards the non-religious and the non-respectable. And what is that attitude often? Often it's fear and contempt. Why? Why do religious and respectable people hold non-religious and not-so-respectable people with such fear and such contempt? Could it be the fear of associating with people that the moment you associate with them, you might become like them? And now we get an understanding of the attitude of the religious leaders because it was one of two extremes. If I'm with them, contamination. Or, worse, assimilation. Hey, if I hang out with these people, I'm going to become exactly like them. Contamination. Assimilation. But Jesus offers a third alternative. By the way, is it possible for Jesus to be with a sinner and not sin? Apparently. Is Jesus contaminated and defiled by simply being in the presence of a sinner? Apparently not. Because rather than assimilation or rather than isolation, Jesus gives the alternative of mission and ministry. Did it ever occur to you to love them and pray for them and be with them and give them the gospel? I think so many more people would be reached who have AIDS if we would spend more time at an AIDS hospice. Do you think that simply laying down your life and going outside the safety of these walls is going to contaminate you? Or will it reveal a propensity for our own self righteousness? Pastor Chuck used to tell us, Oh, how horrible our sins look when they're committed by someone else. And he's right. Lying never looked so bad when someone lies to you. Thieving never looked so bad when they stole from you. Self-righteousness never looked so disgusting until they looked down on you. Some diseases are positively contagious. But poverty isn't. And neither is homelessness. And neither is a physical disability. Or whatever category you choose to segregate each other. Jesus is trying to give people an opportunity to opt for an option that the religious leaders were unable to grasp. And so in verse 17, when it says, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus uses the metaphor of sickness to describe the sinner. In the metaphor, it's assumed that most sick people understand that they're sick. There's no shame when you're ill to go to a physician. And it's the physician's job to minister to the sick. And by the way, What is the advantage of laboring under the weight and the burden of sin when Jesus can be your burden bearer? We've already seen that Jesus is the savior and the healer, and he can be the burden bearer. And by the way, the moment that Jesus says this, does he imply that the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, that they have no need whatsoever? No. What he's saying is that in order to get help, you have to recognize your need for help. Two weeks ago, a friend of mine who actually took my job when I was at Calvary Chapel in Albuquerque was hiking in the Grand Canyon. He's fit. We're about the same age. He does everything right. He eats right. He exercises. For his age, he's a world-class tennis player. He doesn't smoke. He doesn't chew. He doesn't go with those that do. He takes good care of himself. He's like that Boulder bumper sticker that says, Live right, eat right, and you still die anyway. No, that's not a Boulder bumper sticker. They'd never post that on their car in Boulder. On Monday, he had a massive heart attack. On Thursday, they took him into the hospital. And he had to have a triple bypass. Here's a guy who eats right, exercises is healthy he does everything the right way it is possible that something could be wrong terribly wrong inside of you and you don't even know it As a matter of fact, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew, when he writes this very same passage, the Holy Spirit reminds Matthew of the words of Jesus. But go and learn what this means in Matthew chapter nine, verse 13. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance here. He's representing the heart of God and the mind of God and the character of God. This is what I want. I don't need more religion. Just behavior. By the way, religion can't save you. It never can. It never will. Religion will never be able to save you. Only Jesus will be able to save you. How could the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, how could they have overlooked what the psalmist said in Psalm fourteen, two and 3? The Lord, the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that understood and that sought God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There's none who does good. No, not one. Paul quotes that very same scripture in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, when he writes, as it is written, he's talking about Psalm fourteen, two and 3, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seek after God. They have all gone out of the way. They've all together become unprofitable. There's no one who does good. No one. You mean... Even the scribes and the Pharisees? You mean even the current crop of disciples? The religious leaders were in the most danger of all because the people that they feared and the people they despised and the people that they abhorred, they knew something was broken. They knew something was wrong. When you live in a world of isolation and when you live in a world of segregation, when you walk into a room and people's eyes immediately go away from you, when you walk into a room and people begin to judge you by what you're wearing, when you drive down the street and they judge you by what you're driving, when you go into a circumstance and the first thing that people ask you is, where do you work and what you do? And you are automatically sized up in a single moment on the basis of what you you look like and what you have and what you do. The religious leaders may have been willing to concede that nobody's perfect, but at least they were on the way. Jonathan Edwards famously wrote, I have had a vastly greater sense of my own wickedness and the badness of my heart than ever I had before my conversion. It's true. I was voted most likely to go to hell. And there was a reason why. Because I was not only opposed to Christians and Christianity. I went out of my way to isolate them and humiliate them. I grew up in a world where there were little boundaries. My mother and father divorced when I was three years old. My mother went through a series of failed relationships so that by the time I was eight years old, she had four more children. She worked one, two, or three jobs in order to just keep enough money so that we could have a place to stay and food to eat. But with no instruction and no direction, I became the person who decided what I was going to do and not do. I wish I could say to you that the worst things that I've ever done I did before I became a Christian, that that would be lying to you. The worst things that I ever did were after I became a Christian. Before I became a Christian, I had an excuse. I wasn't a Christian. I didn't have the power, the presence of the Holy Spirit. I didn't have the promises of God. But as a Christian, I did have the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And I did have the the promises of God. And so my rebellion and my wickedness was willful rebellion and willful wickedness. John Knox said in youth, in middle age, and now after many battles, I have nothing in me. But corruption. Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher and Christian, said, God is none other than the savior of our wretchedness. So we can only know God well by knowing our iniquities. Those who have known God without knowing their wretchedness have not glorified him, but they have glorified themselves. Our Kent Hughes put it this way. The first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but my badness, not my merit, but my misery, not my st- but my falling not my riches but my need and sometimes we become so smug in our conceit and self-righteousness that we fail to see our spiritual need and to recognize what an amazing thing it is that God would save someone like you and me I heard a radio news program and it reported a very strange thing. There was a middle school in Oregon and it faced a kind of a unique problem. A number of the teenage girls in in middle school, they they begin putting makeup on and they were going in into the, the little ladies room and they would put their makeup on and then they would go up to the mirror and they would go. And they would kiss the mirror and there were dozens, dozens of lip prints all over the girls bathroom finally, the principal decided something had to be done about it. And she called the girls into the restroom and there was the custodian and she explained how difficult it was and what a major problem it was to get it off the mirror every day and to demonstrate how difficult it was. The custodian walked to one of the toilet stalls, took one of those very long brushes, started sudging it inside of that toilet bowl, and then he wiped down the mirror. Guess what? The problem went away. The girls never kissed the mirror ever again. We sometimes really, really, really don't get it. That when we cozy up to the mirror of self righteousness and we press our ruby red lips against that mirror and we think about how beautiful we are and we don't realize the terrible toll that's taken and how it causes us to distance ourselves from the people that we should be caring about. Jesus offers an alternative. You don't have to isolate yourself from the sinner. And you don't have to become like the sinner. Did it ever occur to you that mission and ministry might be the option? That you can say to them what I've said to you? God is in the the business of, of healing and forgiving. God is in the business of taking someone exactly like me and forgiving me. When the religious leaders looked at Matthew and when even his pals and friends looked at Matthew, I'm sure that they had no idea what Jesus had in mind for him. And I suspect that you have no idea of the amazing things That Jesus is willing to do in you and through you. But the isolation or assimilation or the mission isn't going to take place inside of these walls. It's going to have to take place outside these walls. You know what I loved the most about Calvary Chapel when I first came? It was a place where people like me could go to church. And be welcome. Broken people. Empty people, people who were less than perfect, people who had a track record of failure. Oh, people might not gasp and pass out when you walk into a room because you're such a notorious sinner. But if everyone knew exactly what was in you, how many people would be with you? If you knew exactly what was in my heart, you wouldn't listen to me. And if I knew what was exactly in your heart, I wouldn't want to talk to you. Hey, it works both ways. But God has a different plan, a better plan, an exciting plan that we can present Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that you call sinners. Lord, we thank you and praise you for the miracle that anyone can be saved. But Lord, the fact that you could save someone like Matthew and save someone like me. What a testimony to your goodness and your mercy. How gracious you are. You're willing to forgive sin and reconcile us to yourself. No wonder Paul said that we're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. Lord, no matter how many books we read and no matter how many doors we pound on and no matter how many people we meet, Lord, we know that there's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing that's going to make us good enough to be loved and saved. Lord, we remember the words of Paul here in his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. But Lord, you didn't wait for us to become good enough, but rather... You call us not in our goodness, but in our badness, not in righteousness or self-righteousness, but in that dark, empty place where only you can fill the need. And so, Heavenly Father, we understand something that unless you save us, we're not going to be saved. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray for that person right now whose heart is beating loudly They hear the voice of Jesus. Come. Follow me. Lord, I pray that they would heed the call. Lord, I pray that they would leave whatever wicked circumstances that they find themselves. Lord, that they'll get up from the table and that they'll walk away and that they'll walk with Jesus. Lord, we commit them to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.